You're listening to Coding Borbs, episode 63. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net, where you can find our show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Michael Outborb. <laughs> and and I'm also Joe Borb. <laughs> I'm filling yeah. in. Uh, unfortunately, Joe is out this week. So we'll eventually get back to a full crew and maybe one more episode, right? I think the Borbs got him. Yes, they did. This episode is sponsored by FreshBooks. The all-new FreshBooks makes ridiculously easy accounting software that's transformed how freelancers and small business owners deal with their day-to-day paperwork. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. FreshBooks provides the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. Getting started on FreshBooks is extremely simple, even if you're not a numbers person especially if you're not a numbers person. Now, when you email a client an invoice, FreshBooks can show you whether they've seen it. This puts an end to the guessing game. The new notification center is like your personal assistant telling you what's changed in your business since you last logged in and what should be dealt with like overdue invoices. This lets you focus on what's needed to get done and help you get back to your work faster. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash coding, that's C-O-D-I-N-G, and enter coding blocks in the how did you hear about us section. All right, so let's get into the very first thing that we always like to do, and that's the reviews, and thank everybody that's done that. So I've got the iTunes reviews this time, and starting off, it's polymorphism, Vijay Devuri. Sounds Need Work, Brett Santori, and Bizrail Walter. So very much thank you to you guys for leaving us nice reviews on iTunes. And rounding out the Stitcher reviews, still useful for JS, which (laughs) is an applicable name to this podcast. It is. So... As always, for the full show notes, you can visit www.cuttingblocks.net slash episode 63. We have incredibly detailed show notes, so go check that out. And we have a little bit of news this time, not a lot. And actually, Chris S. wrote us, and we kind of glossed over this last time when we were talking about the the aggregate routes and how to deal with certain things. So the whole thing came up about if you had like an order processing aggregate route then, you know, you'd have your business rules in there. You'd control your invariance there. And then Joe brought up the fact that, well, what if you had to process a thousand of those things? Like, I just feel like it would be non-performant. And then I just kind of said, well, you'd probably create another domain for that, right? Like you'd probably have a different domain set of classes that you'd set up. And Chris was like, well, that's kind of interesting. Like, you, you know, could you go into that a little bit further? And I thought maybe we just chat about that for a second. Like part of part of the whole thing with domain driven design is you can enforce in a way that makes sense complex business rules, right? So when I said that you could probably just create like another domain, like let's call it order batch, right? Or something like that. 
You could do that, but I don't know that you necessarily want to get away from using the other domain because you're going to have logging set up in there, maybe audits. You're going to have all kinds of business rules that have to be enforced. So I guess in my mind, and, I, and I'm curious what you think is when, when he wrote back about that, what I was thinking is you'd probably have a more efficient way of handling that kind of stuff, right? So instead of just having a collection that you loop through, maybe there was a way to where you did async calls um, to be able to handle multiple orders at the same time, you know, it, basically something to where you could do things in parallel. So that's kind of what I was thinking was you wouldn't necessarily want to repeat all that logic because you've created it once, but you might create a more efficient way of doing things. Maybe it's not even another domain. Maybe it's just a, you know, some sort of app that you've written that can parallelize that, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, if I understand what we, what we've discussed so far, then really this would be the, the domain objects would be more about the way the expert, uh, what was the 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 term for the, the expert domain uh, users? You know the the language that they would use, right? So if they're not talking about orders in like these batches, right, or this list view of them, then I guess maybe you wouldn't have a domain object for that. Yeah, does that sound right. so? We're kind of like there's that line of like, okay, here here are the objects that we just need to get the job done, you know, these are the mechanics of, of the overall application. And then there's the, the model that has the domain objects. And this is part of the ubiquitous language, right. That we're talking about with the domain experts. And if they're not talking about, Hey, I need a summary, an order summary or order list or something like that, then I feel like that just is one of the mechanics of the application. Yeah. That's I, I'm kind of in that same ballpark because We've said it, I think, probably on just about every episode. Domain-driven design isn't for everything. It is for when you have complicated things that need to happen, right? And they, they end up becoming spaghetti and unmaintainable over time. And we're not talking about just because there were bad practices. We're talking about because it's a complex domain. And, and so I think that whole batching of orders or doing summaries or something like that I think that's just another set of, of classes that you might have in your application that can handle that kind of thing. Not necessarily domain driven or anything like that, but just, you know, either workers, like if you needed to process a thousand of these things at a time, you literally write an application that would take advantage of that domain that you've already done. Or like you said, an order summary report or something like that. That's, I see that as a different entity. Yeah. One, one idea that kind of came to mind, while I was thinking about this was like, um, in the case of let, let, let's go back to our, our canonical e-commerce kind of example here. And so you have some warehouse, uh, and there are people out there that are fulfilling orders and they're going through and picking all the items out and putting the orders together. And, you know, they might work with a batch of orders. So that might be part of, you know, that, that ubiquitous language that applies to that specific need. And this is where we've talked about how, uh, you know, different namespaces may have similar looking, um, class names, right. But, but serve different purposes and different features and functionality, right. So maybe, um, it wouldn't necessarily be for display purposes, which is, if I remember right, that's where the email was coming from. 
right? So it was talking about the display, or that's where the conversation was, at least at the time, when uh, when Joe brought up the 1,000 orders, if I remember right. Yeah. Or at least yeah, somehow that like got that. stuck in my head that, that we were talking right. about it for display purposes. And and so, you know, I'm, I guess... I guess the answer is, uh, yeah, it's not no, it's just maybe. <laughs> right. Dep- it depends on if there is another domain or if you're just trying to aggregate some stuff to show. Yeah. So I, I thought that was interesting. Um, oh, also along the lines, you and I worked on a project at one point several years ago, just thinking about the whole parallelism type thing. Like there was a, we had a project where we had to process, you know, hundreds of thousands of images, right? Mm-hmm. And there had been a process written that ran that took what four hours, eight hours. I, I don't even remember. Well, it was ridiculous. It was that. Well, it depends. It, on yeah, how it might have been. How many you and to run? By simply turning that thing into something that would run in parallel using async operations because it wasn't something to where you needed like image one to be processed before you could do image two before image three, they were literally one offs. And so we turned this thing into a parallel thing and it finished in what, like 20 minutes, maybe, maybe even less. I I can't remember exactly, but you know, that's maybe something that we need to do an episode on here sometime in the future is just talking about thinking through problems in something more than just a serial way. So anyways, that was an aside. And then the, the next thing I wanted to say, and, and I bring this up because we do it at our job and I feel like it's highly useful and it's be a thought leader in your company, in your group. And I don't mean you go shout to the rooftops about the the way that things have to be done, but talk about the way that you're implementing things and doing things, especially with your other team of developers, because A, people will learn things that they didn't know. B, you'll learn things you didn't know. And C, you'll find out things about probably even the software that you're working on that you didn't know existed. I know that when when we're giving talks within our company, I learn things all the time. Yeah, your I'll thoughts? Like, I, well, I like it, but from I don't I don't know if I consider it a thought leader uh, from that kind of perspective as much as I just consider it like simple knowledge sharing and letting others know you know within your organization. Uh, you know, hey, here's some neat things. Here's some neat tricks that that some neat patterns that we have out there that exist that you can use too, or just even if you look at it from like the, the selfish perspective of, well, the more people I tell about this thing, then the less I'm going to get hassled about it. Right. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I no longer become the, the single point of contact for that particular feature or, or whatever it might be. Right now there are more people that know about it. And so you know, I can get a decent night's sleep or, you know, I can go to lunch undisturbed or whatever, right? You know, I mean, your, your environment may vary, but I mean, I, I, that's kind of the way I think about it. And and if that translates into being a thought leader, then, you know, that's great. Uh, but I, not maybe my primary purpose. Yeah, I think by the thought leader, I just mean if you guys aren't already doing something like this to where you're sharing information, because I've definitely worked in groups where it's almost like a bunch of silos. Mm-hmm. Be that person that steps up and says, hey, I think we should do this, right? Like even if it's even if it's a 30-minute thing once a week or once every other week, do it because it will help people out and you'll find that 
your code will get better. You'll find out that people stop repeating things as much because they didn't even know they were there in the first place. Like there's just a lot of benefits to it. And then what'll actually make you feel really good about it if, if you haven't already been sold it yet is you know that brand new project or a set of classes that you created that you're super proud of that's super awesome and does a really neat thing? Well, if you tell other people about it, then they'll know to use it. And so now it'll get more buy-in and more traction because now more people are going to start using it. So yep. now and your awesomeness is known. Yeah. And it might even get improved upon if it's possible, right? Well, I mean, it might I mean, be so come awesome. On, that Alan. <laughs> come on. You're saying the awesomeness has to be improved? <laughs> it, it might not. It might. It may be impossible to improve the awesomeness. But so, yeah, so I just wanted to say that because I feel like a lot of times, you know, a, a lot of programmers just do their job and go home, right? And, and I feel like they could make their lives and other people's lives easier if if everybody would just kind of share some information. So, you know, that's so, all we have for the news. Well, no, it's not. I got one more oh. for you. Do you like money? How about, no. uh, do you like $200,000? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit, right? We all do, right? <laughs> so we've talked about gaming many times, right? DreamHack Atlanta is coming. Have you heard about this? No, I have not. So, I mean, esports is now a thing, right? Like it didn't used to be, but it's now a thing and it's a big thing. And so this is uh they're they're having the Halo Championship Series here in the Atlanta area, uh, July twenty first through the twenty third, and the uh, if I remember right, the grand prize for the Halo Championship is the largest prize ever of two hundred thousand dollars for the team. That's ridiculous. It's man. gonna be awesome. Yeah. Hey, and our buddy Spoonraker should check this out too because they've even got a Rocket League championship. Yep, I was about to mention that. Yes, they do. Yeah, it's it's so you know you need to be in the Atlanta area. Uh, they're providing the consoles. You have to bring your own controller and your own uh, USB micro USB cable for your your Xbox controller. But um, yeah, it's gonna be awesome. And so not only are they going to have a Halo uh, team based um, you know, championship series, which is the way that the esports typically go or, or team-based uh, events, but they're also going to have uh, a free-for-all competition, Halo competition. And I, I think that the, if I remember right, the, if I remember reading it correctly, the limit, the prize for that one was like five grand or something like that. So, you know, big difference, but still. But hold I mean, on, would you take five grand for playing a video game? I mean, come on. Well, no, no, no. I don't, don't, Hey, I'm not, don't get me wrong. It's amazing. It's amazing. This can even be a thing. I'm just saying right. like, it's a big drop, like from the, you know, the team-based prize to the free-for-all for, prize. Cause if you think about it in a free-for-all match, man, that's hard. That's, that's kind of rough, but yeah. So I'm, I'm really curious. So yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be attending that definitely. Uh, and this is going to be fun cool. to see. And it's That's supposed awesome. to be like 24 hours. If I if I understood it right, it's 24 hours a day for those three days. I don't know, man. That's gonna be it's gonna be crazy. <laughs> yeah, so I, I might uh, I might need some coffee the next day. That's fun. All right, so now let's get into the meat of this. So continuing with this series, oops, continuing with this series of talks that we've been doing on domain driven design. We wanted to dig into some of the 
I guess more detailed pieces of it. We've hit a lot of broad strokes and, and we've talked about a little bit in depth, like about the aggregate roots and that kind of thing. And there's little sort of just edge things that, that help make it all come together. And we wanted to hit on some of that. So the first topic of order here is explicit constraints. Yeah. So these are constraints. There was a quote that, that, uh, you know, constraints can often emerge implicitly, and expressing them explicitly can greatly improve your design. And it helps to think about like, well, okay, what is a constraint though? Like, what does that even mean? And I was thinking about this, and like the most, the the simplest example that I could come up with would just be like a simple boundary check, right? Like if something's greater than or less than, less than or equal, greater than or equal, something like that, right? Like those are simple boundary checks. So we've all seen this. We have it, uh, you know, you have it a thousand places in your code where there's some if conditional statement that says, if this is less than that, go do something. Right. And, and maybe you followed uncle Bob's, uh, you know, patterns there, his, uh, uh, philosophies there. And, and, you know, in that, if condition, when it does go to execute, you know, to do some other logic, it's a nicely named method. And that method, you know, is very expressive about what it's doing, but you still have this constraint inside of your if that is not expressive, right? Uh, so the, the idea here is all about, let's give, let's give that constraint also some name. Let's name it, which (laughs) I couldn't help but think of like, Game of Thrones when when I was reading this part and I was like a constraint needs a name. <laughs> it seemed fitting. <laughs> I mean, this goes back to it, it ties in just like you said about Uncle Bob Martin back into clean code. You know, take take chunks of code and turn it into something that makes sense just by giving it a name. And it's it seems so like, why do I need to do that? Why do I need to put, you know, if this is greater than 10, then don't do it. Well, what does greater than 10 mean, right? Like having something that says does overflow bucket makes a heck of a lot more sense than greater than 10, you know? Yeah. And and that was another, there was a really great point that he made in the book, in this chapter, where he's saying that like, okay, by giving this constraint a name, right? Now it's something that you can discuss. You can talk about it with uh, other, uh, you know, do- with domain experts. You can discuss it with other developers, whoever you need to discuss it with. It's now something you can discuss. Because if I just walk up to you, Alan, and I'm like, hey, man, if I is uh, less than 10, what's your day like? Right. Right? Like, right. You, that, that's, there's no context about that. That's meaningless to you. There's, you have no idea what we're even talking about in that regard. But if yeah, you give it and- an expressive name, then you can yeah, and it's like they said, if you give it an expressive name, you don't have to care about the implementation, right? Not unless you're having to modify that thing. You can literally look at it and say, oh, I know what this is. This is supposed to be doing to my model. And at that point, that's all you care about. You, it, I, There was a statement that was made today at work that the cognitive um, – there was too much cognitive stress trying to figure something out, like the way that something was done in code. And if that happens, then you're going to create problems. You're going to create bugs because if it takes mental exercises just to figure out a simple thing, people will make mistakes. 
Yeah, and there was there was a um, this kind of premise that he had in here, which kind of in my mind went back to there was a lot of parallels between this and um, uh, Uncle Bob's Clean Code, but um, by giving it this intention revealing name, he called it, then you know other people will understand its purpose without caring about what its implementation is. Right, you could just immediately see the name. You understand conceptually what it does, what it's supposed to be returning, if it's supposed to be returning something, and you don't care to dig into it. You don't need to dig into it to find out, like, well, wait a minute, what is this thing actually doing? Right. And to take it a step further, though, maybe you don't want to dig into it because that's not what you care about. You see what it is, but maybe that is the piece you're looking for, and now it's obvious. Right now, it's. Hey, where do I do this overflow check? Check for overflow. Easy. Okay, I know that I need to go there. And you're not sifting through lines and lines of code to find where this one logic bit is. So either which way, right? Whether it's something you can look at and say, okay, I can move on. That's not what I'm looking for. Or wait, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Either way, you've saved time and you've helped the person out who's looking at the code behind you, as well as if you ever need to talk to a domain expert. And I think one of the things that I really liked in this when he was talking about this stuff was he said a fundamental concept in model-driven design is that it's easy to see relationships in the model. And so when you name these things and you give them explicit names and boundaries, you get to see these things. It's it's easier to visualize. And, and that's important. Yeah. And you know, we've kind of mentioned this in regards to, you know, and maybe you'd have this as a method in your, in your class, but you could, if necessary, if, if these things are very complex or there it's obscuring the object's main point or its main responsibility, you could factor that all out into its own individual class, right? So, you know, maybe it's some kind of a, a validator, uh, type class. I was trying to think of a real world example where there might be such a thing and I'm drawing a blank, but I so know there is one. The example that they had in the book and, and I highly recommend like, when I first started looking through this book, and I'm going to be brutally honest here, like I felt like it was very verbose. Um, there was just a lot of words, right? And, and it was easy for me to lose focus. As you start getting into the meat of some of these topics, like these right here, he references back to certain things that start to kind of pull it all together. And one of the things that he talked about was the shipping cargo, about how if you are... If you're a shipper, you'll take in, you know, you have X amount of capacity for your cargo. Let's call it 100%, right? What they'll typically do on shipping lines is they'll book more like 10% over what their capacity is because it's inevitable they get cancellations, you know, leading up to the time that the shipment's going to go out. And so one of the rules, one of the things that they have in place is you can overbook your capacity up to 110% or, or to 10% over. And the way that they ended up doing this was by what you said, they broke the class out. So instead of, you know, add cargo to your shipment and then having a bunch of if else's in that add cargo thing, now they did, they used the strategy design pattern and then they could just swap in like through DI or whatever dependency injection and swap in this thing that says, okay, you know, this is a uh, cargo validator. We'll, we'll call it right. And, as long as it's under 110%, then it's allowed. So 
it was broken out into a separate class as opposed to just a separate method because there was more logic to it that needed to be brought in from the the carrier as far as what its capacity was, the cargo itself, and you know whatever other business rules they needed. And so I, I felt like that was a really good way of showing it. And again, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes for the strategy pattern uh, out on Wikipedia. I think we've talked about it in the past. Um, but yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't, if we haven't done the strategy pattern, I feel like we did though. I think we have. Yeah. If not, we should do that one. Yeah. Um, I'm going to look it up real quick while you talk. Yeah. But he also gave some, uh, criteria so that you can, you know, determine like how, how to know that your class is distorted by constraints or too many constraints. Like how do you know when, uh, it's time to refactor that out? And there were a couple of quotes here that he has that I really liked where first is evaluating a constraint requires data that does not otherwise fit the object's definition. So if you have some, uh, going back to your, your cargo ship example, like, you know, is ship full, you know, method or something like that. And that method needs to reach out to a lot of other, uh, types within your, your system that aren't necessarily, really related to that, you know, ship object, except in this, maybe this one particular case, then that's a candidate for getting that thing out of that class, right? Right. And reducing the dependencies of that class. Um, if you have related rules that appear in multiple objects, forcing duplication or inheritance between objects that are otherwise not a family. I mean, we, we've talked about duplicate code before, but now we're thinking about duplicate code duplication as it relates to constraints, right? Like, um, you know, I was just thinking of like an example, like if you had a, a, a switch statement or a bunch of if statements together where you're trying to change something to decide, you know, oh, well, what type of object should you use? And, and we've kind of talked about in the past, like, oh, well, you should just use a factory uh, instead for that. Maybe that's like another example where, uh, you know, this constraint fits in, right? Like you're letting, you know, in that particular case, the factory is deciding based off of some kind of constraint logic, what kind of things should be created. Right. Yep. Um, another, the last one was a lot of design and requirements conversation revolves around the constraint, but in the implementation, they're hidden away in procedural code. I thought that yep. was a weird one. Cause I was trying to think of like a real example where like, I mean, I, I'm sure it's come up where we've talked about constraints, but then yeah. not implement it explicitly. Yeah, I can't come up with one. By the way, we did do the strategy pattern. It's been a, it's been a minute. Oh, okay. So I got <laughs> a good reason for not remembering. Yeah, episode sixteen. So wow. If you yeah, if you want to go back and listen to it, that that's been a while back. It's in the backlog. You know, but it will help. And again, we will have a link in the show notes. Um, so processes as domain objects, right? So should we have procedural code in our model? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, not exactly. So the the easiest way to think about this one, uh, th this chapter was to think of a service, right? Like we've talked about, uh, in the past, like microservices have come up in conversation before, uh, you know, web services, like, you know, having, having that service 
in your system, which you know may be small, may be big, but whatever that is, uh, could be an example of your process as a domain object. And by having that service explicit like that, it allows you to uh, um, express that process explicitly and en encapsulate its complex logic uh, within it, right? And so no, nothing else needs to know about how that process works except for that service. Yeah, I mean, the whole key here is when you're doing your domain model, you want to make sure that you... There's been a lot of talk and, and a lot of what we've read. It says that you don't want an anemic model, meaning that your model needs to express what it is, what it does, and all that. And so this is a key part of it. You want to make sure you keep that stuff in there. Um, what do we got up next? Oh, make the algorithm. It, so what if it can be done in multiple ways? You can make the algorithm or a part of it its own object, right? Which that almost goes back to what we were talking about with strategy pattern before, right? Break that thing out. You know, I was Make trying to. Some. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I was trying to think of an example, like when I was going through this this chapter in the book, and when we got to this section, I was trying to think of like an example. And, and you know, I mean, we keep harping on this e-commerce as our canonical reference, our canonical example here. But I really felt like the credit card processor kind of fit here, right? There's, there's this payment process that could be a service, right? And there's multiple ways that that thing could be done, right? And you know, depending on whether or not it's a credit card payment or a PayPal payment or pay by you know, an Apple Pay or Samsung Pay or whatever, right? Each one of those could have their own complexity about them. And each one of those processes are a different strategy that you, know, you don't want them tied together, right? It's kind of like yep. your peanut butter and your chocolate. You don't want it mixed, right? <laughs> it and that's kind of how your PayPal <laughs> logic goes with your credit card processing logic. You don't. You want to keep that stuff separate. I think I, mean, I got it, that right. It, yeah, I don't know, man. If you ask my wife, she might argue with you about the chocolate and the peanut butter. <laughs> oh, but but it's. I think the reason why it's easy to go back to the e-commerce thing, though, is when we talk about domain-driven design, it's for complex business problems and e-commerce systems are incredibly complex, right? Even like you said, the payment instruments, we've both seen it. And a lot of people have seen it. If you have, if PayPal, then do this, if credit card, do this, you need to be thinking about refactoring that because at some point, as Michael said, now you've got Apple pay. Now you've got Samsung Pay. Now you've got Amazon. Now you've got, you know, what other type of payment instruments are you going to put in place? And how incredibly impossible is it going to be to maintain that code over time? Yeah, in the e-commerce one, I mean, we, we keep using that as the canonical reference, but it's also, it's easy. I think it's easy for us, for everyone to be able to yeah. conceptualize because we use it every day, you know, yeah. or, well, I I probably shouldn't, but... <laughs> <laughs> I've seen our Slack channel. People people are, are as bad addicted to it as we are, especially Amazon. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, so how, how to tell when a process should be made explicit, right? Yeah, I like this one. The whole, you know, do domain experts talk about the process? That's key. That's right. 
I mean, that that's almost calling it out. If if somebody that's not a developer is telling you, hey, we need this particular blah, blah, blah to be done, then you can say, oh, okay, that, that needs to be something that we call out in our model. Right, and this goes back to the ubiquitous language. If If the domain experts are specifically talking about whatever this process is, uh, you know, like the container ship being full or not, like then putting a name to it makes it clear. It's something that you can talk about. And, and clearly it's important because they're already talking about it, right? So don't try to hide it. And this was a simple one. This, this question about, you know, how to tell when the process should be explicit. There's two choices. If they talk about it, Make it explicit, but if they don't, and it's just part of the overall mechanism of your application, then keeping it hidden within that uh, that model is not bad. Maybe right. even preferred. Yep, because then it won't confuse anybody when they go to have that conversation. The ubiquitous the ubiquitous language won't be muddied up at that point. Right, because the last thing you want to do is talk to a domain expert trying to get more information. And you start bringing up a conversation about something that they have no clue what you're talking about. And it's just a deer in headlights. Look, that's not helpful to anyone. That's never happened. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I may have explained something once or twice or a thousand times. Uh, This episode is sponsored by Airbrake. Hey listeners, do you hate spending time checking logs, running ad hoc queries, or searching your emails for clues on production support issues? It's especially bad when the customer tells you about the problem. If so, then you should take a look at airbreak.io. It's a service for alerting and monitoring so you can proactively address issues and spend less time playing catch up. Airbrake supports .NET and all the major programming languages and platforms, which you can see on their GitHub page. There's a free trial, which thanks to your feedback, no longer requires a credit card number, so you can check it out risk-free at getairbreak.com slash CB. That's getairbreak, A-I-R-B-R-A-K-E dot com slash CB. All right, so let's talk about the specification pattern. I'm fond of this one. Really? Yeah, so a little funny story about this one is I don't remember what I was looking for. I, I, I might've just been flipping through the index or not the index, the, the table of contents. And I saw, and I wanted to know implementation strategies. Right. And I came across these things and I read the specification pattern and I was like, I can use that right now. So I don't know if you recall or not, I sent out a tweet late one night when I was sitting there looking how how do you validate things properly in in a model or in an object or in a domain because that's one thing that's always bothered me is just validation practices usually suck because there's not enough information for you to really be able to do a good validation and and I tweeted out something that Martin Fowler had said that was something along the lines of you can't do validation in a vacuum. There has to be some context around it. And it was one of our most retweeted tweets ever. And I guess it's because it rings true with a lot of people, right? Like it's easy to inform validation on something, but when you're trying to validate something that's complex, you know, what might be valid right now isn't valid, you know, 10 seconds from now, or if something changes just slightly, right, it might have totally different rules. 
So this particular pattern I'm, I'm excited to talk about. So, so let's talk about how things are typically done because I kind of how going back to the, how we did things bad episode, this is, this is something that I see that, that you'll typically find in your code is you'll have this class with some complicated validation and business rules and you'll start baking that into all the methods in your class, right? Like if this, then you can't do this. If you're this kind of user, then you can't do that. If you're this kind of user, then you can't. And it just starts getting incredibly messy and it's hard to reason about. And so then what, what people will do is they'll think about that and they're like, well, this is muddying up my class. So let me bring it out a layer. Right. And then you pull it out of layer and you say, okay, now I'm going to validate all these objects down below it. So you pull these things out, but now this creates the inverse problem in that now you kind of have this bag of properties, which is what we call like the anemic model, right? You, you have almost like this DTO at that point where there's no logic in it. And so it might as well not be much more than just a, a simple POCO or a POJO or whatever your language is. And and now the problem too is, is your model is not expressive. What you said earlier when we were talking about the explicit naming and all that kind of stuff. Now you literally just have properties that mean nothing other than the fact that they belong to this object. And that is how people typically do things. <clears throat> Did you think though the way, like the way you first described that though, it made me think back to aspects though at first, like, it almost, it almost sounded like that's the direction we're going because you're saying like you have this class, it's got a lot of complicated validation or business logic in it, and you know you have this stuff, this these this validation and business logic sprinkled throughout the methods within your class, and you can't reason about in it, right? So like these methods are unreasonable or you know unreadable, and it it really made me think back to like oh well we're talking about aspects, right? Because that's the same mm. kind of like sales pitch for an aspect, right? Maybe, except I, I typically think of aspects a little bit more generically, right? Like a logging aspect or a retry aspect or something like that. Something that's not aware of the domain that it's working on, I guess, is is how I typically think of an aspect. Something that's more of a cross-cutting concern. Whereas, you know, uh, if you think going back to this whole ordering processing type thing, um, if you have a customer service agent that's working on a particular order, there's certain things they can do that a user can't do, right? Like they could modify the price of an object. Well, in a class, you might have say you might have this thing that says, if if user type is customer service, then they can modify the price of the object up to ten percent. If the user is of type customer service manager, then they can modify the price up to 20%. If the user type is just a person ordering, then they can't modify, you know, and you have all these if conditionals and I don't know that that fits into an aspect, mm. you know? So, so I see these more, more, um, maybe class specific, whereas I, I, I view an aspect more of, Hey, this is truly a cross-cutting concern. This is something where I want logging all through my system or I want, you know, retries or I want... Um, null checking. Null checking, you know, all kinds of things. So I see, I, I always view aspects as more generic and general use space type stuff. So at any rate, yeah. So that is 
in my mind, that's how I've seen things happen. That's how I've done things throughout my career, right? Like, let's try and get some of these things brought out a little, a layer so that, so that we can get some of this nastiness out of the, the business object. But then it kind of turns the business object into this sort of dumb thing. Business so, into a dumb thing. Yeah, it really does. So this is this is where you start seeing these key things is the business rules do not fit the responsibility of any obvious entities or value objects. And that's a quote out of the book. And that's so true. When you start seeing these things, like so the order processing thing, what I was just talking about. Or, or the uh, like modifying the price of a product. You might be in the order class, but now you're looking at the user, right? Like that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the order class or, or the product or any of that stuff. And so, so now you've got these, these jumble of things that, that it's reaching out outside of what it typically does to get more information. And that, that kind of leads you to believe that this, hey, this is not part of my entity or any value object I have. That make a little bit of sense, I think. Hopefully, I know I'm personally a little bit lost on because, like, where the okay. So there, let, let me back up for a minute. There was a uh, a definition in the book for the specification that states that a specification states a constraint on the state of another object which may or may not be present. Right. Yes. And so, using that as the the building blocks, let's go from there as it okay. related to your your order example. Because I kind of got lost in the order example because I was thinking like, immediately I was thinking like, oh God, why would you have that in the order class? No, yeah, I agree. Oh, no, it, dude. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I guess what I was thinking was, you know, typically I guess to sort of bring it back around so it will make sense for anybody else that might be confused is, you know, you have an order, you place an order as a customer. You can't go modify the price of a product, right, before you place the order. But, Let's say that there's some sort of problem with your order. The customer gets it. You can call up customer service, and the customer service representative might be able to go into your order and knock 10% off the price just because you had a hassle, right? But you're really mad, and you want to be escalated to the management of the customer service department, and they're allowed to give you up to 25% off. So that's kind of how I was thinking about it in terms of the order was just, you know, the customer placing it versus what somebody internal in the company can do if you were to call up about that same order. So the the world use case of, of what that was. That tied in, I hope. Yeah. The weird thing about this, though, is like I was trying to think of like, What's a real world example of of the specification pattern that we we see that we use every day in our code without realizing that that's what it was? And I couldn't come up with any. And when when I look for like examples of specification patterns, it reads more like part of the predicate of a of a SQL query. But yet, my understanding from the book was that querying is not specification is not querying. No, it's not, but it, so I'll, I'll see if I can explain this a little bit better. I had not seen this in practice, by the way, um, before I'd come across it in the book and before I had actually imp- implemented it on my own, I hadn't seen it used. Like I've, as long as I've been programming, I'd never seen this particular pattern used. So basically the gist of it is this, um, 
you take, you create a specification class and it's going to extend an overall generic type specification that can be and, or, or is satisfied by, which is what you were talking about, the whole query looking language, right? The and and the ors. So the general case is when you have this specification, it can be made up of different homogeneous object or heterogeneous objects, right? So in the case of the order that I was talking about, you could have literally a user, you could have the order, and maybe you even have a product. And the problem is those are three different things. So this, this particular specification or this test, this validator doesn't really belong in any one of those. So you break it out into its own. And then what you can do is you can, like typically what they'll do is they'll create a factory that will generate these specifications for you. And then what you can say is, all right, this specification is satisfied by, and that's actually a method call on it. And then you'll pass in your order object, or you'll pass in the customer object or whatever it needs in order to make this specification be able to work. You pass it into it and then it will return you back a Boolean. So, um, you know, you say, Hey, is this thing special? Is this order what is satisfied by? So can increase 10%, right? Let's say something like that. Let's say that you have can modify order value by 10%. You might have a specification for that. And then you'd have a dot is satisfied by you'd pass in the order and potentially the customer or, or the user who's doing it. And it would tell you based off the information that's passed in, it would do the check to see, are you a customer service agent? Yes or no. Is this order available to be modified? Has it, I mean, there might be checks inside that specification that say, Hey, it couldn't have had, it, it couldn't have been modified previously or something, right? Whatever the business rules are, but that is a specification pattern. You literally have a separate class out there that is doing the validation checks against whatever you can give it. That make any sense? I literally have not seen this in the wild before until I, until I went into this and I actually found um, some people who had done some open source things to where they make it kind of nice. Like there's a, there's a C sharp version of it, I think on code project where not only do they follow that, that particular pattern with ands, ors, and the is satisfied bys, but they allow you to do fluent syntax as well. So there, there were some nice things there. And to pile on on top of this, so the is satisfied by makes sense, right? That's basically saying, hey, did this pass the specification or the test? And you'll get back a true or a false. Now, this whole and or or thing, and it, man, I'm jumping all over the place here as far as our notes are concerned. Um, there is, okay, so... There's, there's three purposes of it. There's this to validate that an object is ready to fulfill some need. That's what I just talked about. The dot is satisfied by. And that's a, that seems to be a naming pattern that's used pretty much whether you're in Java, C Sharp, whatever. Um, the other use case, there's two other ones. There's one that is to select objects from a collection. So let's say that you have... Uh, a bunch of items in a collection, you can use the specification and you can say dot um, is satisfied by condition one and then dot and, and then use another specification. So one of the samples that I saw, I think on that code project thing is they had mobile phones, right? These mobile phones would have manufacturer like Samsung, uh, LG, Apple, 
and whatever else. And then, then they had properties, things like, um, was a smartphone or was just a basic phone. And so the specification tests that were created were things like, is Samsung, that would have been a specification. Another one was, is smartphone, could have been another specification. And then that way, when they wanted to pull items out of a collection, they could have an entire collection of cell phones. And then they could say, um, is Samsung dot is satisfied by, and then pass in the collection. Or the, or the phone from the collection. So you're basically iterating over the collection. You pass in the one item from it. It'll say, yeah, it's satisfied by it. It's a Samsung phone. Yes, it comes back true. And then you do a dot and and say, is it a smartphone? And then you pass that into that as well. And it comes back, yes. And so basically you're getting this chain of Booleans. And if they all evaluate to true, then you could basically take that and say, okay, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for smartphones by Samsung. And so it's a way to, to sort of have these explicit ways of saying, pull things out of the collection that meet all these specifications I'm looking for. But this is where, this is where I had confusion with this part of the book though, because you know, Going back to what I said a few months ago about specification, this is not part of querying, but yet the example that you just gave kind of sounded like, okay, we're trying to query these objects to determine if it's a smartphone that's made by Samsung and has a touchscreen or whatever, right? Uh, that sounds like querying. Yeah? So, yeah, it's And when not I think specifications, I think about like, Hey, I want to I, I want to build a house. I need the specifications on how to build that house, right? So when I think about the the, the term specification, doesn't necessarily I don't think about you know querying something either. So like the terminology was kind of throwing me off. Yeah, I think specification here is does it meet this criteria? So I, I guess the reason why it sort of doesn't blow my brain up is when you look in a lot of like uh, when I was doing some angular app stuff back in the day, uh, there was one, I think it's, uh, it might be Jasmine. I can't remember what the test framework is for JavaScript, but basically you name your test specs, right? And that is, it, it just kind of made more sense to me for that reason. Wait, but you're the talking about no, oh, no, no, this spec was, flow? Uh, no, no, this was a JavaScript one. I think it's I think it's Karma with Jasmine, but they name their oh, uh, test dot spec right dot js or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, so the specification is literally just saying, does this meet the specs? Right. That's really all it boils down to. And so you can use it to query out of a collection by just saying, are these specs satisfied and these specs satisfied? or these specs satisfied, and then that way you can get that item out of the collection based off your criteria. And so it's literally, if you think about it as specs as, you know. So it's a like, tester oh, is what we should, yes. how we should think about it. Yes. It's not for querying objects out of something like, a, you know, a database or, or a, a list or some in-memory collection. But it is, a, it is a tester that can be applied to that list Yes. And there could be all kinds of crazy business logic in it, right? And that's the thing is it hides that complexity in the spec itself 
But like you said, you're not querying out of the collection. You're going through every item in the collection and checking it against each spec that you, that you care about basically at that point. Right. And so the whole and or and the ors that you can do in the in the specification terminology is 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 just like a, a query clause. If this meets this spec and this spec and this spec, then you can do something with it if you want. And you could even or it to something else and say, or if you're a super user, then then you get it. Well, another part of the value that I understood though from that was the ability to chain these together. And that's right? what I'm talking about. So the like dot and, and dot and dot, dot and. or dot and yep. dot not. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And so I'm going to, I actually found the page. There is the C Sharp project that I was talking about that they have. It's excellent. You probably have to sign up or put in some sort of account information to be able to download the code. But in there, they have the entire class layout to show you the specifications. And this is where they had the mobile phone example stuff and their examples that they have in the code is really easy to follow. Oh, is this so the code me, project one you said? Yeah. Um, let me put this. Hey, in I got it right show. here. Yeah. Oh, you've got it as well. All right, cool. Yeah. So that, if you download that code, it'll make a heck of a lot more sense because inside there, you'll actually see where they do the chaining and again, it's like you said, they're not querying out of the collection, but they are testing items in a collection. And then if it passes all those tests, then they do something with it, like maybe add it to a new collection. It, it, it feels like uh, this is where when we talk about like a SQL statement, right? And, you know, the technically that select part, that's the query part. And once you get to the where part, now you're into the predicate territory. <laughs> and so like we're kind of splitting hairs here because this is... Uh, this specification pattern is in the predicate territory of that SQL query. If we were to think about, you know, use that as an analogy here, right? Right. Only difference is you can't create the collection from this thing. Like that, it won't work, right? Where the SQL query is actually creating your collection based off all the stuff that you provided. This will just allow you to test items in an existing collection that you already have. Mm -hmm. So that's really the, the key difference there. Um, and then there was one other thing here. And this was interesting because what you were talking about earlier with the with the constraints and, and I had to bite my tongue was you can use it for specifying a, when creating a new object for a specific need, right? So you could use a specification to determine whether to create one type of object or another type of object. So it's a similar type thing based off, off business rules. So instead of burying a bunch of complex business logic in a factory, maybe use some of that logic in a specification and that can be used to create an object. So those are the three use cases. I think probably the first two are the most common. Um, but again, I've never seen this in the wild. It, it was It was something that I was really excited to read about because I actually had a situation where I was like, I can use this thing and I did implement it. So we talked about, you know, dumb objects a little bit, right? Unfortunately, in one of the projects that I've worked on, there's a lot of DTOs, a ton of DTOs, and they're literally nothing more than mappers from a table, right? Or stored proc or something like that. And the problem is, I needed some logic around some of the flags and some of the features on this DTO. I didn't want to code that information into the DTO. 
I think we even talked about on the previous episode that, you know, there's ways to, to sort of push it forward to where it's not so bad. So for instance, you make all your, all your sets private. And then that way you can't mutate the state of that thing in order to do that. You'd have to create methods on that DTO, but then it's no longer really a DTO, right? Now you're turning it into some sort of model that's got some knowledge. But my problem was the DTOs have a lot of information in it that I don't necessarily want wrapped around with business logic because now you're trying to maintain state on something that anybody can can jack with. I didn't want that. So what I ended up doing is I, I created like a mini domain object that wrapped, adds the, the DTO as a property to it. And then I have these specifications that I defined that take in a user type and the other data I needed. And then I can make decisions based off, hey, does this user have super user rights? Does this user have this right? Does this user have this right? And then that way I could toggle some of the flags on this DTO using the domain wrapper. So essentially the business rules live in my domain thing and then it modifies the properties on a DTO and then hands it back. Like people can say, Hey, give me the DTO back and then it'll have all the data set. And that was kind of my stepwise way into getting into a state where this thing's more maintainable. Because if I had gone about it the other way, it would have been that nasty mess of if the user can do this, then toggle all these flags. If the user can do this, then toggle all these flags. And you just get into this nasty mess of if else, if else, if else. So yeah. Hmm. (laughs) And, And it's hard to visualize because it's not a, a simple topic, but I, I hope if nothing else, you'll go Google this pattern or click or come to our show notes and click the links and download that sample code and see it because it really will clear it up and you'll go, I cannot believe I've never done validation or, or checking this way before because it's just so easy to follow. Yeah, this was one I, I still I'm gonna I wanna dig back into this. I'm gonna dig into this code project to try to better understand this pattern because it sounds like a very neat pattern. But yeah, there was another statement where it was talking about using factories to create or configure the specification. And then that way your factory will know of these sources and or these dependencies, you know, call them let's call them what they are, right? And, and you can keep the rest of your domain clean. But then when I think about the specification in that term, then it kind of doesn't jive with what you were saying about like the, you know, it being part of like this, this predicate to like how you're going to test a, some other object. Right. So, so, it works that way because what you'll do is you set up your factory and let's say that factory takes in two different types of objects, no matter what type of spec that you're trying to create, maybe the user object, because it's going to have different, you know, um, privileges that it can do. And then maybe your order object, let's just keep with that. So you'll have a factory that could create a ton of different types of specifications, right? Like can modify order price, can drop shipping charges, can, um, can get free shipping, can do whatever, right? Then that factory, if, if you need to check for any of those, then you might say, give me a, uh, free shipping spec equal factory dot get 
free shipping spec and then you pass in the user and then the order. And then you might also say, Hey, give me uh, a discount spec. And then you pass in the same things calling that factory. So you think about it. Like you have your variable declaration set up. So you have var spec one, two, three, four, those were all done calling the factory. Then down below that is where you'd actually use them. So you'd say, um, you know, go ahead. I think I think I just had an epiphany that came to me. Okay. I'm sorry. But I, I think it started to make sense because then in that example with the factory, what the factory could be returning would be just a simple DTO or in DDD speak, this would be a value object, right? That that represents um some piece of data. So going back to our canonical e-commerce example. Uh, a tax specification. So you might pass in here are the items that they, that are in the cart. Here's the billing address. Here's a shipping address. Right things you know, so you have a bunch of different sources of information, and then this this tax specification factory would take all this different data and it could return back a tax specification. Like this is what maybe. But the point the, being is that like it's it it's it could return it could it's taking all this other data and it could return back it's returning back some other object that's just a simple value object just simple DTO there's nothing there's nothing crazy about it there's no logic in it you know it's not it's not yeah um, no because it's not returning back a value object it's actually returning back your validator your tester it's returning back your tester so. The tax thing is a little bit hard because typically if you're thinking about that, you're you're saying, hey, what tax rate am I going to get? That's not what the specification objects do. Those basically return you back Booleans. Is satisfied by is the primary method that comes out of a specification object. So you might say is taxable, right? Let's say that you have a taxable specification. You call your factory, you pass it in the order, the address, the items, you know, you pass in all those things, then you're going to get back a taxable specification. And at that point, you'll say is satisfied by, and then you'll pass it in, um, you know, the order or something. Um, so basically, it's your tester that you're getting back from the factory. And then you can apply that to any order you have, right, that, that meets those specifications. It's not a value object though, because it does have logic in it. This is satisfied by is your business logic to determine whether or not it's true or false when you call it. But I don't, I don't want to belabor it too long because it's probably, if it's confusing you, it might be confusing other people too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Oh. So. It definitely sounds like some a neat pattern, and like I said, I, I want to dig into this code project one and better understand uh, what this thing is and how how I could better use it, though. Yeah, it's it's one it's truly one of those things that without seeing code, it's a lot harder to visualize. But if you do go to that code project one, whether you're C Sharp or .NET or Java or whomever. They're, the code examples in that link are excellent, and they're super easy to follow. And if you're familiar with any type of OO, you'll be able to you'll be able to go along with it and see what they're doing. 
Cause see here, here's where like this whole section of the book kind of felt contradictory to me because like there's a, cause as soon as I thought like I was starting to understand what the specification pattern was, then something else would come along and be like, Oh, well it's, it's totally not that. So, you know, we, we talked about it not being query related, right? Like, and, and there was this, this, uh, section in the book where it was talking about like what the specification isn't right. And it says that it's not a filter for pre-existing objects. That's querying and it's not a test for an existing object that's validation see you see my confusion on it when i saw that i was kind of confused by it too because really in the examples it is it's does it meet these requirements right and that is validation to it i guess you got to draw the line between validation right like is first name required or is it not that's slightly different than are you allowed to do X, Y, and Z because you have these privileges. And, and I think that's, that's, I, I don't know if it's a semantic thing that they're, that they're trying to do there, but, but yeah, this was confusing to me when I saw both of these points, especially when you see how it's used. Yeah. So again, what is it? It is a whole we new object. Have. We don't <laughs> <laughs> it, it is and i so just for the record i plan on doing a youtube video to kind of show this from beginning to end and the different uses for it so that it will make a little bit more sense because i honestly this is one of those patterns that when i saw it i was like this is super valuable because it can really clean up your code and that was to me, that's almost one of the most important things. If you could, it's like we talked about earlier. If a developer has to really, you know, like crawl through code, then then it's too complicated, right? And this can simplify things. Um, so, what is it? It's a whole new object or set of objects that are created or configured to satisfy a specification. A specification is nothing more than a test. Do do these things all, you know, do these um, requirements line up for this particular use case. Um, oh, so, all right, this, this kind of, now that I've gone through and confused the heck out of you and, <laughs> and hopefully this will be clarified. Well, that didn't take long. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this brought something to me though, that, that I find myself struggling with, and I'm sure a lot of people do. And I, and I want to get your take on it. This whole, do you put your business logic in your database and stored procs, or do you put it in your application? And why? I mean, I feel like we might as well talk about tabs versus spaces if we're going to get into this holy war. It, man, I, I, I feel like we need to. I, I think that this is worth the small holy war that it will create here, only because the tabs versus spaces is a preference thing. There's not, I mean... There's not a ton of value to be. If you watch Silicon Valley, from, you would know that it's an efficiency thing because it's one tab. I, <laughs> I love that. Uh, I totally forgot about I think, that. Line. I think it depends on who you ask this question, what the answer you're going to get. Um, if you I'm ask asking a Michael data engineer, <laughs> then they're going to come back and say what they know best. They're going to talk about their wheelhouse, like what's comfortable to them. And so their answer is going to be like, well, Let's keep this logic in the in the database, right? Are you a data engineer? And and well, no, but you know, that's <laughs> beside the point. 
<laughs> so, so now ask me if I'm an application engineer. So, are you an application no, engineer? But that's beside the point. So, <laughs> so if you ask if you ask the application engineer, like they're going to feel more comfortable in that because that's that's what they know. That's what their wheelhouse is. I think there's something to be said that for there isn't a one size fits all. There's different types of business logic. So there might be some business logic that's just related to the data and how to get the data and things of that nature that seem like a natural fit in the data storage tier. And then there's other business logic that's, uh, you know, maybe more um, broad in, in scope related to the application or the application's function that belongs in that set of code. So I don't feel like it's a one size. I, I, I feel like it's a both. Hmm. Now again, I'm I'm neither an application nor data engineer, so I could be completely wrong. <laughs> That's so. I I do want to probe a little bit further here, and I just realized I never hit the record button on the video recorder, so there will be no YouTube version of this one, or there can <laughs> be, and it'll just be hand drawn figures of us. <laughs> oh man, I hate that. Um, so. I, I wonder let's let's see if we can take it a step further. All right, let's let's take it to a complex business rule to where can somebody modify the price of an item where should that logic live? Should that live in your application? Should it live in your database? Just you, where what do you think would where's the right place to put this? Or even order processing, where does that live? Does that live in your application or does it live in your database? And I have my thoughts and wait, I'll share them. I mean, the moment. order processing one is definitely like, wait, what are you calling order processing? Now, if we talk about the the, the very minute ver first question, you know, very granular first question, okay. which is about, it's basically a permission issue is what we're describing. Like, where does the permit, who owns the permission, right? Well, it might not even be permission. we're talking about changing data. It could be more complex. So just to, just to be clear, it might be that you can only modify it if you're a customer service agent. It might could only be modified if it hadn't been modified before. It might could only be modified if it's not a certain type of item, right? Like, there could be tons of business rules. But that's what I want to say is this is a complex problem. Where does that live? Does it live in your database? Does it live in your application? So as soon as you started bringing in other business rules that were like, okay, if it hasn't already been edited, if it hasn't, it can only be changed once, things like that, it it kind of felt like now your business rules were getting into the application tier, right? Like I was on the fence when it was just like a permission thing. And I was like, oh, it's a, this is a great trick question that he just, he got me. He, he <laughs> dang. That was great how he did that. I didn't even see it coming. <laughs> but <laughs> but then, yeah, it kind of felt like it was leaning more towards the application tier. So here is my biggest problem with this is if you had asked me five years ago, maybe, I would have said database. Why? Because anybody that needs to bulk update things, they need all this stuff to be able to happen in the database. My biggest problem with that now, it's actually twofold, is one, databases typically don't scale very well, right? That's one big one. 
Um, and we know that when I write applications, I want them to be used by 10 billion concurrent users at a time. That's yep. a given. That's in every um, one of your specifications. That, that's where we first learned about the specification <laughs> pattern was <laughs> number of concurrent users. Yes, yes. all of them. Yes, all <laughs> the world. Thank you. Um, but then the other thing, too, is outside of scalability, performance and sometimes context doesn't exist in the database, right? The user of your application has a particular context. It's somebody that's logged in. It's a whatever. It's in the application. Are you going to funnel all that stuff into your into your database to where now it can somewhat be cheated, right? Because you could call a stored proc and pass it whatever the heck you want. And if somebody can figure that out, then they can sort of cheat it. And it's no longer a black box. It is just something that you can plug whatever you want into it. Another thing that I don't like is most of the time, and I know there's ways around this, but a lot of the time your business logic is wide out in the open may not be a great thing. But then the other thing too is, and uh, one of our friends that we worked with said this, and I completely agree with it. You cannot think of databases like you do with, with object-oriented programming. Typically, if you try and make something reusable, you come at a major mm. performance cost in your database. You can't, if you apply some sort of scalar function to an entire query, it has to run that function for every single, you got 10 million records, guess what? It's running it 10 million times. And it's not efficient at that. It is a set-based system. And so, like, when I start thinking about this stuff, I'm like, man, it really makes more sense in the application. Why? Because you can scale it. If you need to reuse it, it's easier to reuse, right? You can just plug it in. Now, some people argue, well, if it's in the database, you can just call it. What You got 20 parameters past this proc. How do you fill that thing in, right? Like... It sounds like one of the things that you're saying then is that like one of the one of the decision criteria is if state is involved in the decision making, then it's in the application tier. I think that's don't a given try just to transfer about. your state into your database. This, the database should be stateless. Everything that happens there should you know just run on sets, stateless, and be done. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb for me. Um, I think. I, I guess I've just gotten more and more as time's gone on. I've really seen more value in having that stuff live in an application that's somewhat easier to reason about. And also, like I said, it's easier to scale. If you want to, if you want to spin that thing up on 10 other servers, you can, right? And if you have a thousand different things that you need to process all at the same time, you could potentially spin up a thousand different servers if you wanted to each do their own thing. You can't do that with a database. And oftentimes, it is way uglier to look at your dynamically created stuff in a database to figure out how all these pieces fit together. You know what I'm saying? So I, I thought it was an interesting thing because this whole specification thing is literally doing your validation, even though it says not validation checks, but it's doing your your requirement checking in the application. So you've now taken that away from your, your database. So if you wanted to process that same type of information in a batch, you wouldn't be able to necessarily just do it in a SQL statement, right? You'd have to leverage the code that you've written that have all these specification tests. And that's why I brought this up is because it this kind of does say, no, you're choosing a side and you're choosing the application tier, you know? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a good example, though, where... 
you need to operate on large sets in order to make some determination or to set something and oh you, i give you, could, you a perfect you wouldn't example. want to do that in code right and so kind of the one example that was that was kind of coming to mind here is that like if you were going to uh, do score percentiles on all of the tests, all, all of the scores of students in the United States, right? That's a lot of data and you don't want to like loop through that. And, and in order to do this, the percentile scoring, you want to do it on the set, the data set across the entire population of scores that you have. So that kind of, you know, business logic would be in the database. Could be, but so check this out. There was there was a a thing that happened, you know, in the past where uh, customers needed to get refunds of a certain amount for it, like coupons that were applied wrong, and so you have let's say five thousand orders that needed to have certain refunds run. Well, you could do it in the database, but then you're missing out on all the logic that was in your application that would do your audit trails, your logging. And it might've known about things that the people in the database thought that they knew about, but they didn't, you know what I'm saying? And so by, by writing a SQL script to do that kind of stuff, you're missing out on all those pieces that add up that, that your application gave you for not for free, but, but it's already baked in there, right? That's where it already was. You try and port that stuff over to the database you lose your logging. Let's say that you had things that were logging out to files on a disk for your audit trails. You're not going to get that out of your SQL box or, or your already BMS. Like there's a lot of things that don't happen. Like you were talking about aspects, right? Like this try three times thing. Like you need to call your credit card processor and issue the refunds. You know, that becomes way more difficult, right? So, so, so then let's, let's restate it this way then. So we said that anything that that involves state goes into the application tier. And let's say that anything that might be simple CRUD, you could keep in the data tier, like, you know, simple sprocks for like getting and retrieving and updating data. But anything that is set-based that that needs to operate on large sets for particular operations should stay in the database. Going back to the Unless there's a lot of business logic. Yeah. Yeah, it's well. I mean, I mean the scoring that that percentile scoring is something that you know you'd. I can't see how you'd want to do that if you had right. Like I'm with. I you. don't even know how many students there are in the United States. Right. Uh, there's like what? I don't remember. Three hundred million people here. Who knows how many kids or how many students? Yeah. So I mean, like if 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 a if a third of the United States are students, that's a hundred million students, and if you were to rank all of those students' test scores so that you could say like, oh, my student is in the 98th percentile, right? That's a large data set. You don't want, uh, you know, 100 million records in memory that you're then going to try to do some scoring on. And why would you? Like, you already have this capability inside of databases, right? Yeah, there are some things that they're, they're made to do better. Right, just just straight up. So, so large scale it, set operations leave to the database. Yeah, so it, it's just something interesting to think about, right? Like, don't take that hard line stance of everything has to be in the database or everything has to be in the application. Like, there are definitely. Oh, so my original answer was right. I I mean I think so. Um, 
but I do lean towards putting a lot of things in the application layers nowadays. Just it, it gives you more flexibility overall. So with that, that wraps up the uh, specification section and our random thoughts on, you know, where to put things. So with that, I do want to say first, thank you for everybody that has left us a review and written all the incredibly nice things to us. So thank you. And if you haven't, and you've been on the fence and you just haven't done it yet because you forget about it when you get to work or you get home, please do take the time to go up there and, you know, write a few nice words to us on, you know, why you like the show or how it's helping you or anything. It, it really does make our day. We appreciate it. And we do this because we really want to help other folks out. So if you would like to do that, go to www.cuttingblocks.net slash review. And there are links there to either take you to iTunes or Stitcher. And you can, you know, put all your, your happy words in there and we will gladly read them. So, it's now time for my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. So I was, I got to say, I got to admit, like to listen to you guys, since I, I wasn't available for the uh, last recording, I was a little saddened that I missed the, uh, you know, being here for the yup, nope uh, <laughs> survey before for the invariant. That, that one, I was like, oh, man, I forgot I'm missing that. Yeah, I, I really believe everybody lied about that one. They had to. <laughs> yeah, I was I was still a little shocked by that. That I was like, oh, man, really? Uh, so, uh, yeah, so in the last episode, you guys asked, at what speed do you listen to podcasts? And your choices were half speed, normal speed, one and a half times normal speed or two times normal speed so alan you're gonna you're gonna play prizes right rules by yourself yes i can win yeah well maybe <laughs> there's still an opportunity to lose let's not let's not take that away yet yeah i gotta pick the right one for uh, sure it, yeah oh so first i think we might have omitted some things here because james he said that he listens at Summit four times playback. What player is he using? Dude, I don't know because most of them get really choppy at two. So I, I don't know. We're, we're going to have to ask him because that, that's insanity. Uh, I mean, obviously, you can't listen to us at four speed because <laughs> we speak real fast. Do we? <laughs> Not really. I don't think so. <laughs> um, so – uh, by prices right rules, I'm going to kind of split the difference here, and I'm going to say the 1.5 okay. is what most people chose. And let's go with 25%. Okay, so you remember when I said that you could still lose? I lost, man. That's ridiculous. <laughs> this is an example of that. <laughs> normal speed, then. Everybody does normal. Oh my God. I couldn't believe that that was the popular vote. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Normal speed. Over 50% of the audience listens at normal speed. That was shocking what? to me. You know what though? I've heard a lot of people say that they listen while they're doing things. And the only way that they'll retain anything. And, and Carl's one of these guys that will listen to podcasts while he's coding and he'll retain it, but only at normal speed. 
So I think that's the reason. I think if it's something where people are listening on the go, like just driving, I bet they do no I bet they go faster. I mean, I can understand that because if you're okay, so my preference is two times. I like to listen God. to things two times. But it does require active listening yeah. in order to follow along with what's being said because you can get lost in the conversation quick. Uh and there and you know, occasionally, you know, it'll happen where like I'll be driving and all of a sudden, you know, I'm in an intersection or whatever. And, and yeah, I'll be like, Oh wait, what did they say again? And let me rewind it. Or I'll slow the conversation down just to pick back up. And then, and then I go back to, to double speed. But yeah, is, is if I can double speed is my choice every time. So, but that's, yeah, I get it. You're right. That's fast, man. Like I, I'm a one and a half speed guy. Like I, that's to where it still sounds like a normal person just speaking faster. Two is almost like chipmunk speak, right? Like like you said, it's active listening. It really depends on the player though. I mean, mm. I think that the I think modern players, I don't think they sound like chipmunk speak. I mean, maybe like if if you had tried to play something at double speed 20 years ago, then yes, definitely. But I don't feel like it's that bad now. It's just not as smooth. I, mm. I like it to. I like it to sound, you know, s- double is not natural. And actually, some some are just too fast. Like some of them are just, you know, the people speak fast enough to where two is is just too fast. Maybe but, that's what James meant by four times speak because he's listening to like somebody from New York who already talks really fast, and then he's listening to them at double speed, which makes it sound like <laughs> somebody from the South talking at four times speed. So yeah, I get it now. Wait, wait, do we talk slower down here? Yeah, I really feel like yours should be like half speed. Because <laughs> uh, you got that slow southern draw about it, I you know? That the, the buttery smooth. No, not really. All right. So, <laughs> um, all right. All right. So, so let's get into today's survey. And this one is brought to us again, Joe Recursion Joe, bringing us another uh, another survey idea. So I guess How that makes How apropos is that? By our, the way, yeah, that that <laughs> makes him our absentee Joe. Uh, so, so since we're uh, since we're one Joe down, so uh, this episode we ask, how many monitors do you use? Just one, or two is the minimum, or three, like a boss, or more than three. Because if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. What about you? Not not a guess. What, what's your take? Well, what's my answer? I mean, yeah, yeah, it's varied. I've gone from two screens to three screens before. Or I, I guess more recently it was from three to to two. But the two that I'm using now are like ultra wides. They're like gigantic. <laughs> so, I mean, I haven't upgraded yet to that 49-inch Samsung Beast oh my yet, goodness. but <laughs> I keep saying I yet. Oh, um, yeah, so I think it kind of depends. But there's times where it's like even with the with those screens where I'm like, I almost wonder if it's kind of like a handicap at some point. You know, like if I have Too to much. work off of just my laptop monitor nowadays, it drives me insane to have only that single 15 inch display. You know what? I will say this, 
And this is one thing that I love about the Macs. And even Windows, the like the, the latest Windows 10 stuff, as long as the gestures on the trackpad on, on the laptop are good enough to where you can do like your four finger swipes to move screens like virtual desktops, I can live with it because mm. it's, it's like super fast to get from one program to another. So like if I have my programming window up and then I have my email up, then I can just swipe over and get to my email or swipe back and get to my program. I will say I do prefer, you know, big monitors, but I can do it just because trackpads have gotten so good on allowing you to navigate better. I, I honestly think that that 34 inch widescreen ultra wide has ruined me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about this monitor before. I don't remember which some LG monitor. You yeah, LG thirty four UM ninety five. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. that that sounds right. Um, yeah. that thing. I, I've gotten to the point where, like, the thing I like about it is that in whatever editor I'm working in. I can tear off files into multiple tabs and I can have I can see them all concurrently. And so I really use the center third of the monitor the most. Like that's where I do like my primary work, but then on the like virtual wings, right? Of of the you know the other two thirds of this thing, I'm using as like references. So I'll have like, you know, oh, here's this other file. Uh like if I'm working in a MVVM pattern right i'll have like you know maybe the view on the left and the model on the right and in the middle is the controller and then you know i can reference things like oh yeah that's what i have in the model oh yeah that's what's in the view but then in the controller i can do you know whatever the meat and potatoes is so yeah i've totally gotten ruined on that one monitor so if i were to answer one it would have to be like yeah one monitor that's just (laughs) really really big Right. It's not quite fair. I think, I think two would be for me. And I think most people are going to say two and I'm going to love all those that go three and above. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I think we should put some specifications on it though, because if you start, if you're, if you're going to say an ultra wide monitor, like that LG that we're talking about, then I think that needs to count as two. I mean, that sounds Yeah, that fair. puts us in three ballpark there. Then you know that, right? In terms of real estate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I get it. Yeah, I so, need like it, two more of those thirty fours though. Oh man, I want them I, wrapping around me. You better get some dual GTX ten eighties <laughs> out there. Ten eighty Ti's. Yeah, man. Yeah, awesome. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode has ten data centers around the world with plans starting at just five dollars per month for one gig of RAM and 20 gigs of SSD storage, and can go all the way up to 200 gigs of RAM and 16 cores for your heavy computing needs. And all of this can be done in under a minute. Linode uses hourly billing with a monthly cap on plans and add-on services, ensuring you'll never get in over your head. You have full control of your VMs, so go ahead and add Docker, encrypted disks, VPNs, and more. To get a promotional credit of $20 towards your Linode hosting fees, go to www.codingblocks.net slash Linode, that's L-I-N-O-D-E, and enter CodingBlocks17 to get started today. It's like you're getting your first four months on us. 
All right, so back into it. The next one that we have up is intention revealing interfaces. So you wanna you wanna kick us off on this one? I would, but I've lost my place in the notes here. Uh, well then. So you can't. Oh. Okay. Now I got it. <laughs> that was weird. Uh, Google spreadsheets was getting all funky on me. Um. Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of like. I mean, we, we already honestly hit on this before already. Uh, we did. And I forget what the section was. It was, uh, oh, the explicit constraints, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, if the, if the developer must consider the implementation of the component in order to use it, then the value of the encapsulation is lost, right? If, if you can't read the name, uh, that was a quote from the book, by the way, but if you can't read the name alone to know what this thing is doing, then, you know, you've already messed up, right? Like, if you, you shouldn't have to go in and read the code of that method or that class to understand what its purpose is. Yep. And again, straight out of clean code, right? I mean... Yeah, again, yeah. The parallels between the two. But I think this dives into more about what you like, and that's the whole testing part of this section, right? Well, yeah, we'll get to that. There was one part though, one quote that was related to the naming that I thought like, oh, that's a great, that's a great quote was that the names of classes and methods are great opportunities for improving communication between developers. And while that's a quote from this book, I kind of, I felt like we said something very similar during the clean code series. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there was this, there was this other statement in the book that he says that, you know, you write a test for a behavior before creating it, and that forces you your thinking into client developer mode. And I loved that idea. I'd never before considered that the impact that TDD has on your brain uh, by forcing you to think of your code as if you were someone else. Yep, and TDD, for those listening that haven't been along with us for the entire ride, is test-driven development. So you start with your test first. So, and, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you're good. <laughs> no, I, I was just going to you know, go on with that, that comment that, that you know, normally when we've talked about TDD or behavioral-driven uh, development in the past, thing, you know, anything where you're like uh, – Let's focus more on the TDD, but like, you know, anything where you're writing the, the test first, you know, we, when we've talked about that, it's been more around just like making sure something works, you know, and not this whole idea of like kind of tying in clean code with uh, DDD by like saying, okay, let's, let's write something that's expressive and let's write something, you know, and, and then if we are going to be, the user of this thing for the first time, how might we want it to look, right? So there was this this other section in this chapter where he's talking about like, hey, when you're writing your test, you know, write the test the way you would like this class to, to function, you know, to be used. And then, you know, write these tests as a way to explore the interface uh, of uh, the interface design of this class that you're trying to test, right? And then... Worry about making it compile, right? Which it's like a mind hack. 
right? Yeah, exactly. Which is why I love this concept. I, I, you know, I, I guess, yeah, TDD probably makes you think in that way, you know, as a user of your code. But this kind of made it a little bit more clear and I think takes it to the next step or, you know, uh, the next logical step, which is to, to definitely think about your code in this way, right? Yep. So I thought that was, a, I thought maybe, maybe not the, the exact, uh, you know, reason for being for this particular chapter, but it was definitely like one takeaway that I got from it that I just absolutely loved. Yeah, I, I thought that was excellent. I, I like the whole idea of test-driven development anyways. Just, I, I think it forces you to be better about your code from the get-go. And, I mean, we've talked about it before, and one of the biggest problems is getting upper management buy-in, right? Like, if if you don't already have an environment where people have bought into the idea, trying to sell the idea is difficult as heck. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. Right. So... Um, yeah, and then uh, you know, there was this section where you're talking about like you know in your public, in, within the public interfaces of your domain, right? Uh, again, keeping this concept of the intention revealing part in, in play here is that you should your public interfaces interfaces should state the relationship and the rules, but not how they are enforced, right? It should describe the events and the actions, but not how they're carried out. It should formulate the equation, but not the numerical method to solve it. And it should pose the question, but don't present the means by which the answer shall be found. And I found that that section, I was like, oh, this is this is a great, you know, I, I really liked the way he kind of put it here, right? Um yeah, it goes back to just naming your things well. Which and is the hardest thing we do. It really is. I, I mean, <laughs> how many times you real. Sat, it, it really is. How many times you sat there and said, man, should I name this? And 10 minutes later, you've renamed it 10 times, and you're still not happy with it. Then you ask a friend, and then you phone a friend, and then you say, can I eliminate 50-50? <laughs> right. Is that your final answer? No. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go out on a limb to say that I'm not the only person that has, like, come up with like what I felt was an awful name for something, but I was at a loss for ideas for like, what would be a better name for this thing? And then I'm like, okay, let me see if someone else agrees that this is a decent enough name. And so you call somebody or talk to somebody, you're like, this is a good, this is okay, right? Like this isn't, you're not, like if you saw this in a pull request, you're not going to be like, you know, deny, right? Like you're going to let it pass. You're going to be like, yeah, whatever. That's good enough. Right? Yeah. Oh, man. I can't be the I've only to- one. I've totally had group conversations where we're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. I just, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, definitely named some stuff badly, but I, while I have named them badly, I did try to make their their intent clear, which is all you can do. So that brings us into the last section that we're going to cover tonight. And this one's fairly straightforward. It's side effect free functions. And there's really just two types when you think about it, and it's queries and commands. And one is get, and the other is do type operations, right? Gets should never modify the state. Commands 
can. They do expect them to modify or, or mutate the state of your objects. And this is, this one is so much easier to talk about than it is to do in real practice for <laughs> me sometimes. Like, and, and the thing that I like about it is typically when you follow this pattern, this, there's actually an entire command, uh, an entire pattern called CQRS, which is command query. Um, doggone it. I'll have to look up the other two. Um, but the whole thing is you'll be able to look at it and you'll know, am I supposed to get something back out of this? Is this a query? So you might call it get something, right? Or if it's a command, it will be something that is an action that will take. And so you just know by looking at them. And if you follow that pattern in your entire project, it's real easy for developers to know what's supposed to happen, right? Yeah, I mean, it may, reading this section of it, though, just made me think that like, well, I was like, okay, is he, is he really just going after functional programming? Is that what we're trying to talk about here? Like functional programming. And in a way, kind of, you know, I mean, he gets into like, okay, well, if we're talking about the, the computer science definition of what a side effect is, then it's a change to, uh, you know, it means that if there's any effect to the state of the system, that then that counts as a side effect. And that if you, you know, a function is an operation that pr can produce a result without any side effects, right? Kind of sounds like functional programming when we talk about using functions, right? And he later talks about like, it's, it's easier to use value objects, which are immutable, and functions, they're easier and safer to use. And more, maybe more importantly, they're easier to test. And we've talked about that. And it, it makes sense why that would be, right? If you have a function that changes, that makes zero state change and just takes in two integers and returns back uh, a result and, you know, of adding those two together, that's an easy thing to test for, right? But when you have to deal with state, that's where things get complicated, right? Really fast. Yeah. And so, you know, he talks in this chapter about like, you should try, you should make every effort that you can to put as much of your logic into functions. Right? Yep. It's testable and easier to understand. Right. So, yeah, functions, it's, all the things. So here's the thing that bugs me, though. So, And this is why I say it's easier for me to talk about than it is to do in practice. So I just recently had a problem to where um, I needed to get a draft item out of a system. If you hadn't created a draft item already, then we create it for you, right? And this is where it really, like internally, I struggled with this. I think I even got cold sweats, like the whole nine, because I made this, this call to the server to say, hey, give me back the draft, right? Get draft. And basically pass it in like an empty good, right? If you don't have one, we need to create one for you and give you back the real ID for that thing. So you're hung up on the concept that you're making a query that should only obtain information and not yes. affect state. But yet, if the thing didn't exist, then you want to affect the state by yes. creating it. Yes. and But you dude, could have, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. But you could have like created the 
or you could have returned back an object that's not yet persisted. Like that persistence doesn't have to be part of the git. Well, I think the correct way to do it in the command query type thing is you would first query. I actually it, it sucks. <laughs> like basically, you'd have to check to see if it exists. If it doesn't exist, so literally, you'd have to have a whole string of other command or other um, processes to run through first. First, does it exist? No. Okay. Now create it. All right. Now go get it. Like literally you'd have to have a three-step process instead of my simple, um, you know, thing that, that mutated the state when it shouldn't have. So I mean, things like that frustrate me because I want to follow good principles, but then I also have this like internal struggle with excess operations. They drive me crazy. So, uh, yeah, the the CQRS, by the way, just to kind of like back up for a second, that's uh, command query responsibility segregation. And that is a pattern also that you can look up. We should probably have a link in the show notes for this. Yeah, uh, I put one in there and this, I guess maybe, I don't, like, it was definitely the art, the first article that came up was uh, Martin Fowler, Fowler. And I don't know if he was the, oh, he wasn't, uh, Bertrand Meyer, Mayer, I'm not sure how his name would be pronounced, but he was the guy that pioneered it. But it seems like There's Fowler some... has an article on every single topic. Like he's basically <laughs> his site is kind of like the Wikipedia of anything related to software. It makes you wonder if he's actually the owner of Google, <laughs> or, he or at, shows least, up on the at top. least the computer programming portion of Wikipedia, right? Um, but yeah, CQRS is a really cool topic. Maybe that's something we'll drop into at some point as well. Um, there are some good plural site courses on that as well. So, uh, anyways, back to the topic at hand here, but yeah, the whole idea is your query should not mutate the state. Unlike what I just told you I did and the commands can, and typically those just return out void. Like in the, in the pure sense of it, if you mutate something, then you might call the get afterwards, just like I was talking about, to get that information back out. So in the purest form, that's typically how it works. But at least as it relates to uh, what uh, you know, the author was saying here was that when you're using commands, you should try to keep, you know, like I said earlier, try to use functions as often as possible. So you know, you're not affecting state, but... Uh, when you do have to use commands, keep them segregated away, keep them simple, and they shouldn't uh, you know, return domain information. Yep. Um, yeah, the I think that's pretty much everything. Oh, this is uh, so the reason why they talk about the the value objects as well. There was a statement in there saying that maintaining invariants and entities and this goes back to state completely but when you're talking about entities and aggregate roots and domain driven design they're responsible for maintaining the invariants the state and the consistency within everything in its domain there that's way more difficult than just throwing away a value object and replacing it with a new value object so that's why why that's like the the preferred way of going about things So 
that brings us into the resources we like this go around. Uh, Domain-driven design. I actually moved it up to the top this go around because we pretty much dug straight into the book for this one. We've got a link to the book there. We highly recommend it if this is a topic you are interested in. Like I said, it's a little bit wordy, but it gets really good when you start getting to the meat and potatoes. Also, there's a site that I keep coming across that I really like. It's Los Techies. And they have all kinds of topics. They have multiple different authors that that write different, you know, anything about design patterns or just different practices or whatever. They've got a lot of good information up there. Their search is abysmal. I could not <laughs> use the search on their site and get anything to come back. So if you want to search your site for something like DDD, you need to do it from Google and just, you know, tell it that you want to go there. And their their slogan is say habla code, which is we speak code. So um Yeah, I mean, you know, you say Los Techies, but depending on how you read that URL, it could just be lost Eckies. <laughs> it's funny because I actually had the same thought when I first got there. I was like, Lost Eckies? What? Oh, the techies. So, um, yeah, that one, we've also got the Pluralsight course that we've gone through and looked at. And then the uh, another Pluralsight one that is by Dino Esposito, which is excellent. So, And then, again, dddcommunity.org and domainlanguage.com, all super good references. You can go piece together all your questions that you have, or you can ask us on these episodes. So... Now, it is my favorite part of the show. It's the tip of the week. That's right. All right, so I'm kind of cheating today. Um, cheating? Uh, I'm cheating, yeah, man. Ryan Williams actually sent this one in and shared it with us today. So Nick Craver from Stack Overflow had sent out a reminder on C Sharp for color info attributes. And this is really cool. So... um. If you are doing something and you're dealing with stack traces, that's awesome, right? Because you can see exactly where things were called and you can see the trace all the way up. But a lot of times people will want to put like, uh, they'll want to put information in logs and maybe you don't want the entire stack trace in there. You can do what are these color info attributes and you get the path, you can get the line of code and you can get the method from which a particular method was called. And you can use that as variables in your own code. And so this is a really nice way to be able to log where things are coming from or even be able to trace them back later if you need to, or maybe even put in debug points and be able to see it without digging through your your um, your stack. So we'll have a link in the show notes here, but I thought that was really awesome. It was a really cool approach to be able to find out where things were happening from inside your code in C Sharp. I and this is... A a cool part is I believe this is compile time stuff, so there's no reflection hit or anything like that. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. <clears throat> as a as a big uh, bonus to this way of doing it, is instead of using like the stack trace object, um, this there's a in the remarks section here of the documentation it says caller info values are emitted as literals into the intermediate language or the IL at compile time. So that's super cool. I didn't know about this thing. Yeah, really fast. Yeah. It, so it, it's neat stuff. I'd never heard of it, and I think that's awesome. So uh, thank you to Ryan for sharing that, and you're welcome to everybody who's going to get to use it now. <laughs> that's awesome. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, as we do, we often find ourselves having to debug our uh, web API calls and, like, why isn't that called 
getting called or why am I not getting the parameters I think I'm supposed to be getting and things like that. And sometimes like in, in .NET web API can just be the most frustrating experience. Maybe I'm alone in that thought, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. So I ran into this scenario where I had, um, my method was getting called, but the parameters that I thought were getting passed in weren't making their way into the actual method. So I could look at the, I could look at the call from like, say, uh, Chrome dev tools. I could look at what, you know, Chrome was passing in to the request, right? And everything looked good there. But by the time it was making its way into my web API call, the, the method was getting called, but the parameters weren't there. And what do you do? So I found this really great Stack Overflow answer where they describe a way where you use object instead, just plain old object. And then that way you can just do a two string and see what actually was being, what the raw, uh, what the raw request contained. So you just use object as part of your, your, your method. So let's say you had some uh, web API post method and you take in whatever your data type is, but instead you could just say object and whatever variable name you want to give it. You know, so in the example they give here in the stack overflow example, it was uh, model. And then you could just say model dot two string and you could actually see what, the, what it was. And it was so much easier to debug that way to see like, Oh, I see why my object isn't getting, or I see that a, it is getting everything that I think it's supposed to be getting. And now I can see why it's not making its way into the object. Like I thought it should be. So would you recommend just leaving it this way or just use it as a debug tool so that you can find out what the problem is and then put it back to your DTO or your object or whatever? I would definitely put it back to the DTO because then it's more expressive. Okay. One thing that I like to do, and I don't know if you like to do this with your web API calls. <clears throat> I've gotten, I don't know if this is a good habit. I haven't decided if this is a good habit or a bad habit yet, but I've gotten into this pattern where I like to create a request object that my my calls on the JavaScript side will will pass in an object that a JSON object that matches that uh, C sharp request object, and then in the C sharp side I'll also have a response object. So from that same, uh, so let's say like if we had some customer you know, get customer request or something like that. Some, you know, some kind of method like that. I might have like a, a get customer request and a get customer response. I might have those two kind of objects, right? Um, I know we've talked about having like too many DTOs floating around too. So it, that's where I'm like <laughs> kind of on the fence. Like, is this a, is this an awful idea or is this like an ingenious idea that Martin Fowler is going to write a topic about if he hasn't already? He, honestly, he probably already has. Let's be honest. That's a pattern I've actually seen a lot in Java. I mean, it, in the spring apps that I've done in the past, that, that is the pattern, right? There's a there's a request and a response object for basically everything. But not, um, but not a generic, uh, not like a, just a generic HTTP request and an HTTP no, response. No, no, I'm talking about Very specific method. to that method. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not, I don't love that. I typically, I, I mean, I, I'm not 
So don't I'm send not, you any of my pull requests. Is basically I, I what I'm hearing from this. Like, so here's my thing, and this is probably my issue with a lot of of programming in general. Is I'm not diametrically opposed to much of anything. Like, how can you be a developer? Works, We're supposed to be opinionated. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, I I am one of I'm very opinionated, but I am not opinionated to the point where I'm going to dictate how a lot of other people write their code. Like, that's mm. just that's me because I feel like to me, coding is partly art. Right. And I, I truly do feel that way. And oh, I, I feel too. like if, and, and if you take that away from somebody, you take away some of the enjoyment or a lot of the enjoyment um, of being able to do things. But I guess the, the way that I typically do it is if there is a DTO. So like you said, you know, get customer, right. I'd have a customer object and it would be both the same DTO that would be used to trans transfer that customer information would be the same thing I'd use for both the request and the response. Well, you know, that's so, actually probably like a horrible example now that I think about it because like that makes it sound like I should really say where like the method name is some kind of an action, right? Mm. Because then it makes more sense. Like like if you had uh, an update, going back to our canonical e-commerce reference, uh, if you had an update order request or, you know, method, then maybe I would have like an update order request and an update order response. I don't know. Maybe that's a bad example too, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. That one's always tough for me too, because you know, the, at least in, in C sharp for years, like typically when you see an action on something, it's got a void type, right? And that's always kind of bugged me because I'm like, man, what if, you know, if I send in something and it gets mutated because I did an action on it, it'd be kind of nice to just have it back in that same request, right? Like, I mean, we've probably all seen the the trick where if you call it a SQL Server proc and you insert a new item, you might do select scope identity um, at the end of that to return back the key for that newly created item. And that way you can give it back to the, the calling application or whatever. And I kind of like that pattern, but it seems to be anti um, the .NET way. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to like, uh, you remember, man, I think it was episode one where uh, Joe was talking about like this whole uh, what if, uh, there, there was the, the comic books, the what if series, like, you know, what if Iron Man was evil and things like that, right? <laughs> and we were talking about like, you know, how interfaces could work like a what if kind of pattern. But, you know, we talked about how we hate like just sprinkling too many DTOs around, right? And going back to this, like, you know, me being on the fence about like, oh, is this request response pattern good, bad, right? The one side about that that I actually kind of hate is that I hate creating that response object because nine times out of 10, all I want to, I just really want to be able to return back an anonymous object because I don't care. It's throwaway. Right. I'm just returning back a response. And what I really wish that you could do you, because you know, in C sharp, you can use anonymous types, but you can't re- you can't pass them around like from one method to another, and and return them from a method. But it would be so awesome if you could, right? Uh, so instead of like, can you not do it with the dynamic keyword? I don't think you can do public. I don't think in your method signature, like let's say if you had a method signature that returned back an int, right? You would say like public int get order number. Right, right. I don't think you could do public dynamic get order number. I mean, oh I'm no, wrong. but you can do public object. You can do object. Yeah, but now you're boxing. You are boxing. Yeah, yeah. So that's lame. 
That's lame. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is, so so in that scenario, yeah, you're right. You're right in that example. Maybe you could. Uh, and maybe that's the way I should do it, by the way. May, maybe that's the answer to my re- my response request uh, scenario. But it'd be nice if you could just have something like you didn't care about and just, you know, I don't know what that syntax might look like. Maybe it'd be like, uh, instead of public int get order number, like public new get order number or, you know, whatever. I don't know. Public hmm. I, curly brace, oh, close curly brace get order number. I don't know. Just you a know what if. One thing, one thing that I have done in situations like what you're talking about, though, is I'll literally, and basically because I know it is sort of throwaway, I'll put that same class in with the web API class. You know, so if it's a DTO that is never, ever going to be touched outside of that particular area, <laughs> then I'll just put a public class you know, request DTO, response DTO at the top of that file because I don't necessarily want it used anywhere else. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, in that case, if you didn't want it used anywhere else, then it'd probably be better to make that a private class. Yeah. But you can't do privates on DTOs for web API. Oh, right. If you're going to remove it. won't it. Yeah, marshal yeah, yeah, yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're it's, right. Web API is aggravating. <laughs> yes, it, it is. It, it, it can really lose hours of your life. So to answer, yes. to go back to answer your question as it relates to this Stack Overflow answer, I would not leave the object, uh, I would not leave the type as object long-term. I would only use it for debugging purposes. Good on you. I would go back to my badly used uh, request <laughs> object type. And yeah, then my have my pull request slapped by Alan. <laughs> Alan just, and I And his indifference. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a bit of a joke right between us like I, i'm the the laid back whatever guy and <laughs> like that's how i am about most everything and maybe that's good maybe it's bad who knows you don't have a care in the world i'm pretty close <laughs> uh so all right that's it in summary we've gone over some nitty-gritty stuff in <laughs> in ddd that would cover let's see let's let me scroll back through because we didn't type it in here explicit constraints processes domain objects uh we had the specification pattern which i thoroughly confused outlaw on and intention revealing interfaces side effect free functions so basically fun stuff yeah man and honestly, go check out the specification pattern. You will thank us later. I promise you. Yeah, that's that's part of my homework assignment. So be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And be sure to give us a review by visiting www.codingblocks.net slash review where you can find links to uh, your favorite podcast aggregators. Yep. And send your feedback, question, and rants to our Slack channel instead of our email. Uh, you can go there by codingblocks.slack.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. We are growing our YouTube thing, so you know definitely go up there and check out the videos. Like I said, I do want to do something on specification pattern up there as well. And you know we want to keep bringing you more great stuff. So thanks, everybody. You're listening to Coding Blorbs, episode 63. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find our show notes, examples, discussion, and more.
Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. Wait a minute. Did I say blorbs? You did. It should oh. be borbs. <laughs> Dang. You're listening to Coding Blorb. I said it again. Blorbs. Borbs. <laughs> Borbs. B-O-B-O-R-B. Yes. <laughs> Beep. All right. <laughs>